As we begin, let's pray together. And now, O Lord, as my words speak to your word, may they be taken to heart. But as my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I have a few questions to ask about prayer. Can I talk to God anytime, anywhere? Are there special words I should use when I pray? Should I pray at nighttime or during the day? Does God hear the prayers I don't even speak? How many times may I pray in one week? When I say my prayers, should I bow down my head and kneel on my knees by the side of my bed? When I first begin, do I call God by name? Should all of my prayers be exactly the same? Does God keep a list of my prayers from before? Will God give me all I ask for and more? Can I pray to God when I'm angry inside, or would it be better to go off and hide? Can I pray for things like a toy or a bike? Should I pray for people I don't even like? Can I pray for something and then pray again? Why do we have to end up with amen? So begins Kathleen Longbostrom in her question of children from her book, What is Prayer? And what's amazing to me about these questions is that they are questions not reserved simply for the child. As pastors and future ministers, we will be asked these questions over and over by children and adults alike, and many of us in this room may resonate with at least some of these questions. They're simple and basic, honest wonderings about the meaning of prayer. As Christians, we know that the Bible is replete with passages where believers either descriptively portray or proscriptively outline the importance of prayer and how God often blessed those who prayed in faith. One might even say that the story of the Old Testament and the New is a story of those who prayed and received God's blessings. We find Moses in the Old Testament reminding the people of God of their blessings before they entered the Promised Land as he said, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us? Whenever we pray to him, there is the picture of Hannah praying for a child and then dedicating Samuel to the Lord's service. There is Solomon in 1 Kings praying to God as he dedicated the temple, saying, Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then we hear the Lord saying to Solomon in 2 Chronicles, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We have the fervent prayers of Elijah, the excruciating prayers of pain from Job, the poetic prayers of the psalmist, Jeremiah's admonitions to the exiles to pray, 
the thankfulness of God's answered prayers in Ezra, the wise sayings about prayer from Proverbs, and God's accepting of our prayers in Isaiah. The Old Testament is a story of the people's praying, of the people needing to pray, and of a God who answered. And in the New, we find Christ teaching his disciples how to pray and the telling of the people the parables of genuine and persistent praying. He told us to pray even for those who persecute us as he went off by himself and prayed for those who persecuted him. He told his disciples that in some cases, demon possession only comes out by prayer. He reminded us of the promise of God's answers in prayer, to pray for others, but also to pray for our own lives. And in a painful scene, he knelt in a garden, sweating drops of blood as he prayed for his own life. And when his life was not spared, we hear of how he prayed for us and our forgiveness, even on the cross. But the story of prayer continued. There was the prayer of the apostles in Acts who prayed to know who would become the 12th apostle. The early church prayed as they first gathered. Paul and Silas prayed in prison. Paul then urged the churches to pray continually as he continually prayed for the churches, telling the Romans to be patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The Bible continued to urge and exemplify a life of prayer from its cover to the maps. Christians are called to be people of prayer. And in our New Testament passage for the day, for example, James tells us, some examples, gives us some examples of when we should pray and for what we, reasons we should as Christians pray. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray, he says. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church and pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, James urges, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you will be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Luther called it the sweat of the soul. And Ralph Herring said it was a summit meeting in the throne room of the universe. Billy Graham called it a rope that pulls together God and man. And N.T. Wright said, it is God being God in me being me. But I like the simple definition of Clement of Alexandria, who said that prayer is simply our conversation with God. We believe that prayer is a great divine gift that we all who believe possess. We understand that while God is above us and beyond our comprehension, he chooses to hear from us and to work in our lives, often mysteriously because of prayer. And so God beckons us to come to him, to have conversation with him. The problem is, amazingly, most Christians do not regularly exercise this great gift, pastors and professors included. We don't exercise it individually, and tragically, we don't exercise it corporately. And since I left the pastorate to become a seminary professor, I have been given the great honor to preach at churches around this region of the country. And what I have observed as overall trends in the way that we Baptists worship has often been very disturbing to me. 
It has good intentions, I think, but what I have observed of how Baptists worship today is in a very sad state. Now, I don't mean to give you a laundry list of all the wrong things that we do, but since I'm given the Truett pulpit only once a year, tops, let me just name a few. First, I'm disturbed at how many churches who claim to be biblical churches actually never read the Bible in their worship services. I'm disturbed that we have gotten to the bad habit of calling the chancel of the church a stage and the sanctuary of God an auditorium as if we have come here to be entertained. I'm disgusted at how many churches in the service thanking the people for coming rather than thanking God for showing up. It's the people's job to come to worship. It's a miracle of God that he wishes to be there too. But probably the most disturbing trend I have observed in my unscientific anecdotal observations is that Baptists have stopped praying in worship. And all of this begs the question, why don't we pray? What are we afraid of or ashamed of? Now, as someone who has been a pastor and has tried to incorporate serious prayer in worship, I have found that I had an awfully hard time finding volunteers, even the week leading up to the service, to be willing to pray, especially among lay people. Folks were intimidated by the prospects of praying, thinking that what they were to say must be in nearly Shakespearean English or that they would somehow stumble and pray something inappropriate. Some people think that only a holy person merits praying in church and a holy person is anyone but them. And so they don't pray. What may be reassuring to us is that this fear of praying is not new to Christianity. In fact, five centuries ago, Luther wrote about it. Those of you who have had me in class, I'm sure are shocked, shocked at this point that I would bring Luther into my sermon. (laughs) But listen to Luther's words here. Some say, I would feel better about God hearing my prayer if I were more worthy and lived a better life. I simply answer, if you don't want to pray before you feel that you are worthy and qualified, then you will never pray again. Prayer must not be based on or depend on your personal worthiness or the quality of the prayer itself. Rather, it must be based on the unchanging truth of God's promise. If the prayer is based on itself or on anything else besides God's promise, then it is a false prayer that deceives you, even if your heart is breaking with intense devotion and you are weeping drops of blood. Now, listen to Luther's main point here. He says, we pray because we are unworthy to pray. Our prayers are heard precisely because we believe we are unworthy. We become worthy to pray when we risk everything on God's faithfulness alone. So go ahead and feel unworthy, he says. But know in your hearts that it's a thousand times more important to honor God's truthfulness. Yes, everything depends on this alone, Don't turn his faithful promise into a lie by your doubts. For your worthiness doesn't help you, and neither does your unworthiness hinder you. A lack of faith is what condemns you, but confidence in God is what makes you worthy. 
And so we readily think of those who prayed with this attitude in Scripture. The tax collector in Jesus' parable comes to mind. He who stood Macron at a distance and prayed genuinely from his heart. He went down to his house justified as opposed to the righteous man, the Pharisee, who did not pray to God in an attitude of humility. If you know you are a sinner and you are ashamed of it, then that's the very starting point of prayer. It is also, by the way, the very starting point of corporate prayer. I think it's always important for Christians to begin their worship of God by praising God and confessing our sins. It's our way of acknowledging that God is God and we are not. Only through confession can we rightly approach God's throne and continue in worship. Now, some people say that we should be sensitive to non-Christians and seekers in our worship. And if prayer is something that they find strange and makes them uncomfortable, perhaps we should forego doing it. And so, I think this is another big reason that we have stopped praying as well as stopped reading scripture and stopped having communion and all these other strange things we've done in worship. Now, typically, worship is comprised of 30 minutes of music and 30 minutes of preaching. And while I strongly believe in both the power of music and preaching as effective and appropriate parts of worship, they are not by any means the whole of worship. Which is, by the way, while I wholly reject the term worship pastor or worship leader for the music minister. That is one trend that's disturbed me above many others. My goodness, worship is far more than music. Your pastor is assisting in worship through preaching. Your lay people are staff members who read the scripture, who read a responsive reading, who sing in the choir or the praise band. Those who pray, all of these people are assisting in worship. And the real worship leader, my dear friends, is no one person in the chancel of the church sanctuary. The real worship leader is none other than the Holy Spirit. As Marva Dawn, in her marvelous book, Reaching Out Without Dumbing Down, has repeatedly told the church, God is both the object and the subject of our worship. And so what we can learn is that we need not worry so much about seekers, about sensitivity, about non-Christians, and about our comfort. But as Dr. Reed so articulately preached last week, we need worry only about the applause of one. Please understand, for the sake of the future of whatever church you may serve or you may serve later on, for the sake of the church in general, worship is far more than this. And this message is not some sort of sermon in the battle over worship wars. It's not a sermon about the style in which we worship, the kind of music we employ, and so on. It is about the actual elements and substance of worship itself. Because worship is never about us. It is about God. And if we as worshipers never directly address this God, how, pray tell, is it worship? Prayer goes to the very heart of the worship of God, both in our own lives and as we gather together as Christians. And if this is not stated clearly enough, we need only to revisit the second chapter of the book of Acts, where Christian worship was first described. And there, starting in verse 42, it says, 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And what happened when they did this? What happened when they did not see worship as a strategy for church growth, but simply worshiped God with genuine hearts? The passage goes on to say, and day by day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What this tells us is that the apostles did not water down their worship for the purpose of reaching out to be seeker-sensitive. I mean, the apostles didn't gather up and say, you know, prayer is kind of a strange thing, and it really doesn't show well on television. And the longer a prayer goes, the more fidgety the people become. Counterintuitively, like the other elements of worship, the stranger it is to the general public the more attractive it becomes. People are not impressed with how well Christians have conformed to society through their worship. What would impress them counterintuitively is how Christians are unabashedly different. And we are different because we don't care what the world thinks. We simply gather to worship the risen Lord. This is our focus. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved because the church devoted itself to the preaching and teaching of God's word, to fellowship, to communion, and to prayer. But once we've overcome the hurdles of feeling undeserving and of prayer being countercultural, once we are ready to pray, Christians, even leaders of Christians, have to learn or relearn how to pray. Listen again to James' words in our passage this morning. Are any of you suffering? They should pray. Are any cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray. James here wants to drive home to you and to me that prayer is essential in the Christian life, no matter where we are in our individual lives and in our corporate lives as a church. When I was a pastor, I would occasionally have church members ask me about prayer about how to do it. And they'd often say things like, well, I just don't know what to pray about. Or people will go and buy prayer books so they can have flowery words to say to God. Now, I know I have sometimes used prayer books to help structure prayer and worship, and I think they can be helpful in our individual and corporate prayers. But God doesn't care how flowery our words are. He's not grading our poetry. God's concern is about our relationship with him. God is concerned with our openness and honesty as we simply converse with him. And so we might lead the congregation in prayer. We might pray about where we are as a church. Prayer is moving from monologue to dialogue. What's on your mind? Are you suffering? You should pray, James says. Pray then for those who are suffering in your church. Are you cheerful? Sing your praise to God. Prayer is simply a recognition that we are weak, that we are helpless, and that we need God to take control. And this is something that we can pattern for our church members. We pray to open our hearts to Christ Jesus and acknowledge that in so doing, there is nothing we need in this life as sinners for now or for eternity than him. And when we are happy, We share this joy with God because he is the source of joy. 
And when we're distraught, we share our burdens with God, and he promises to lift that burden, or at least give us grace to endure that burden with him, because he is the source of company and comfort. And when we're in need of spiritual, psychological, emotional, or physical healing, God is the great physician and counselor who puts our lives back into perspective and who lifts our spirits. And prayer is not simply a a solitary journey with us and God individually. Our prayers during the week are joined with the great chorus of the saints as we learn to pray together in his temple in our churches. And we pray what we feel together through crisis and pain, through happiness and prosperity, and through this experience of sharing our hopes and fears of all the years, we find God's answer and God's peace by God's spirit and God's timing. But if we do this seriously, we have to understand that prayer is not something shallow. It takes effort on our part and part of the whole church. And sometimes Christians are tempted to skip praying to get to the bottom of things. Let's roll up our sleeves and we'll deal with the issue at hand in our church committee. And then if there's time left over, we'll say a word of prayer. Let's get to the sermon and to the meat of our worship. And then maybe we'll close in prayer. But the real work of the church, either in committee meetings or as we gather to worship, is in our prayers. O'Hallisby equates this with what he observed in watching miners digging into the heart of a mountain. With care, he observed the engineers would have holes bored into the side of the hill. It was a task that tried one's patience. Then another crew would come in, and they would light a fuse and fire the shot. The second group, Hallisby observed, no question, not only had the easier job, but much more interesting work. And one sees results from such work. But as Hallisby points out, it took the trained workers to do the boring. Anybody can light the fuse. I think what Hallisby is trying to tell us is that anybody can roll up his or her sleeves and begin to work on a project. But the real work, the work that sees results, takes the patience of prayer. And in the church... In our lives, if we want to see real results, we must cover our work and our efforts with prayer, for it is God's Spirit who will guide us. Most of you are familiar, at least, with the name Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers and was the leading Baptist preacher in the 19th century. He pastored a massive church in England, and only God knows how many souls were saved because of the preaching of Spurgeon. But Spurgeon knew that it was not his preaching alone that would have people saved. In addition, Spurgeon always had a group of people praying in another room while he was preaching. In fact, they prayed throughout the entire worship service because he knew that the real work that sees results is in prayer. You remember our other passage from this morning in Exodus 17. The Israelites are at war this time with the Amalekites. Joshua took to the battlefield with the Hebrew warriors while Moses goes to the top of a hill. And as Moses lifts his hands to the heavens, the Israelites were winning. But when Moses lowered his hands, the tables turned and the Amalekites took the upper hand. 
So Aaron and Hur stood on either side of old Moses, and they held up his arms, as the scriptures said, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. And now I ask you, where was the real work taking place? Out on that battlefield or up on that mountain? Prayer is not a magic formula. But scripture teaches us here that prayer made an authentic faith in Jesus Christ is a vehicle through which God releases his healing power in the lives of many people. Prayer, of course, starts in our own lives as leaders and future leaders in worship. But prayer informs our corporate worship, and our corporate worship will in turn affect our own and our congregation's prayers. And so I want, like James, to encourage you to develop your prayer life. Make it your first priority. Now, I know that some of you may be saying, well, look, I know I'm no Charles Spurgeon. I'm no great saint of the church. I'm hardly an example for how to pray for my future church. Well, guess what? James anticipates your objection. Because in verse 17, he gives the example of the prophet Elijah reminding us that Elijah was a human being just like us. He had the same human weaknesses we have. Remember, Elijah was the one who ran away from Jezebel because she made this little threat. Elijah was just as weak and vacillating as the rest of us. Yet James reminds us he was a man used by God to speak spiritual words to King Ahab and to bring judgment upon a kingdom. So God answered this ordinary man's prayers. And the point of the biblical witness is not to tell us stories about extraordinary people, but to tell us about ordinary people who were used by an extraordinary God. And you too are called according to this purpose. And James is encouraging us to be women and men of prayer. We are not, of course, to be women and men of presumption who get some idea in our heads and then we baptize it with prayer and we say, this is what God is going to do when God has promised to do nothing of the sort. We are to be those who seek God's will and pray for it and thus become agents of the blessings that God brings. And as Luther reminds us, your worthiness does not help you and neither does your unworthiness hinder you. A lack of faith is what condemns you, but confidence in God is what makes you worthy. And what we are called to do as leaders of worship is to give our churches confidence in this invisible, everlasting God that he is with us in our worship and in our lives, mysteriously, especially when we pray. Leslie Weatherhead tells us the story of an old Scotsman who was quite ill, and the family called for their minister. And as the minister entered the sick room, To sit down, he noticed another chair on the opposite side of the bed, a chair which had been drawn close. And so he said, Donald, I see that I'm not your first visitor this morning. And the old man looked up, was puzzled for a moment, but recognized from the nod of the head of the pastor that he had seen the empty chair. He said, well, pastor, I'll tell you about that chair. Many years ago, I found it quite difficult to pray. And so one day I shared this problem with my pastor then. He told me not to worry about kneeling or placing myself in some pious posture. Instead, he said, just sit down with a chair opposite you and imagine Jesus sitting in it and then talk to him as if you would a friend. 
And the old Scot added, I've been doing that ever since. A short time later, the daughter of the Scotsman called the pastor. When he answered, she informed him that her father had died rather suddenly, and they were all quite shaken, for they had no idea that death was so near. And she, con- she continued, I had just gone to lie down for about an hour or two, for he seemed to be sleeping so comfortably. And when I went back, he was dead. But then she added thoughtfully, except now his hand was on the empty chair at the side of the bed. Isn't that strange? And the pastor said, no. No, that's not strange at all. Prayer is to let Jesus come into our hearts, to have him come into our lives, to make him the Lord and the friend that he should be. God is not only ruling up on his throne, God is here sitting among us, awaiting our praise, our confession, and our simple conversation. For the prayers of the righteous are powerful and effective. Shall we, as the people of God, pray again to him? Shall we pray? Let's start that conversation even now. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, inspire us now by your Spirit not to be confident in ourselves as we pray to you, but confident instead in you who hears and answers our prayers. Lord, give us the faith we need to lead your church into a life of prayer and to learn to trust you each day because of your faithfulness to us. This we ask in the name of Christ, your Son and our Lord. Amen.